You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You know, if anyone knows a con, I guess it would be Donald Trump. California lawyer Michael Avenatti gained a national profile in 2018 as a fierce critic of former President Donald Trump. Avenatti asked Americans to believe that his client, adult film star Stormy Daniels, had an affair with Trump. But now Avenatti's freedom hinges on convincing a jury that Daniels is a liar. The lawyer is on trial for allegedly stealing $300,000 from Daniels by intercepting advance payments for a book deal she struck while suing Trump. The prosecution's star witness is Daniels herself. And Avenatti, who's representing himself, got the chance to grill his former client. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Tell us a little about the case, Eric. This is a criminal case accusing Michael Avenatti of stealing about $300,000 from the book advance uh, from his former client, uh, the porn star Stormy Daniels. So he is charged with wire fraud and identity theft for basically intercepting these electronic payments from the publisher, St. Martin's Press. So now for someone who might have been living in a hut during the Trump years, remind us of how they both came to fame. It's a pretty bizarre uh, criminal trial, if you think about it, because Michael Avenatti was representing Stormy Daniels in a pretty explosive lawsuit against Donald Trump when he was president. She had sued to try to get out of a non-disclosure deal that she had struck with Trump to stay quiet about an alleged sexual affair that she had with Trump and to stay quiet about the $130,000 payment that she received to keep quiet about it just before the 2016 election. So you might remember we saw Avenatti and Stormy Daniels pretty frequently on TV, standing outside court. Avenatti was uh, doing lots and lots of television appearances to talk about Stormy Daniels. She was on 60 Minutes. So they were a pretty uh, interesting pair uh, trying to take down Trump. 
they had a big falling out over this uh, book deal when Stormy Daniels found out that Avenatti had been intercepting these payments. And she had been asking him, where is this money from the publisher? You know, all along, according to this criminal case, he knew that where the money was. He had taken it and spent it for his own personal expenses on things like payments on a Ferrari and everything, for, you know, even going to Starbucks, things like this. Prosecutors put together where the money went, and it didn't go to her. So she got an $800,000 advance on the book? Well, it was an $800,000 book deal, and she was getting some of the money in installments as the deal was progressing, like when it actually was published and if she was doing enough publicity and things for this, they were supposed to be giving her installments about a little over $100,000 at a time. But two of those payments, um, Avenatti is accused of intercepting. Um, Of course, he has a defense saying that he was entitled to that money and that he didn't do anything wrong. But when she found out about this, she went to the publisher herself and demanded, where is this money? And they said, well, we've been sending it. Here's the proof of that. And so that's when it all fell apart for those two. I always ask about the size of the book deals because I cannot believe the amount of money that <laughs> that goes into advances on a book you don't even know how well it'll do. So he had a federal public defender? He did. And that public defender gave the opening statement to the jury a week ago. But shortly after that, Avenatti decided to represent himself. So that was sort of a new twist on this case that was already kind of strange to begin with. So that put him in a position to personally cross-examine Stormy Daniels, who's the government's star witness. uh, And that's what happens on Friday. So tell us about her testimony on direct examination with the questioning by the prosecutor. Right. So that's where they spelled it, you know, laid out this whole story about how Avenatti had uh, been communicating with Stormy Daniels every day, you know, by phone and text. So naturally, when these payments from the publisher were supposed to start coming in, Stormy Daniels was looking at her bank account and wondering where that money was, because according to her, she had lots of expenses at the time. She travels a lot. She has a lot of uh, security detail, things like that. So the prosecution had her read out these text messages that were shown to the jury, and it just showed her getting increasingly upset, you know, wondering where the money was and venting her frustration to Avenatti. And then the prosecutor showed the evidence that Avenatti had actually already received the money and kept asking, you know, Stormy Daniels, well, at what point did he say, I have the money? And she would say, he never said that. (laughs) So they're just trying to, they spent that time trying to illustrate all of the different opportunities that Avenatti would have had to tell her where the money was and then failed to do so. And she said he lied to me every day for almost five months. That's correct. There were two payments that had disappeared. So she, you could tell that she was every day asking him about it, which is why I think she was so felt so betrayed, according to her, when, when she found out where the money had gone. So you have Avenatti cross-examining his former client. It must have been high drama in the courtroom just to see that. Yeah, it was pretty bizarre when you think about the falling out that these two had. I mean, Avenatti spent a lot of time, you know, several years ago telling Americans they needed to believe this woman, that she had a pretty salacious tale to tell about Donald Trump. And they really were trying to take the president down based on her word. And now he's here telling this jury that she's a liar and can't be trusted. So he used his cross-examination to try to pull out various times that he thinks showed that she had been untruthful about various things and also questioned her about various times that she had accused other people 
of stealing from her. I think he was trying to sort of suggest that she was paranoid and accused people of theft frequently, that sort of thing. But it really was a bizarre questioning because Stormy Daniels is a pretty interesting character. She is working on a TV show about the paranormal, paranormal activities. So she's on record telling her viewers and fans and things like this that she can see ghosts that she can see into people's houses, basically, through their walls, that she is even uh, in communication with a haunted doll. (laughs) So he was trying to obviously make her look a little bit bonkers and wanted the jury to see that she can essentially make things up a lot, I think, is what he was trying to suggest. Has she made contradictory public statements about her relationship with Trump? Because I got very confused about what her position was. Right. It it was a little confusing. And that was actually brought up by uh, Avenatti. He asked her about a statement that she had made about a month before she hired him, back when her nondisclosure deal with Trump was in force in January 2018. And when reports were coming out about her affair with Trump and the hush money payment, she put out a statement saying that there was no affair between her and Trump. Of course, then she changed her tune on that and basically said the opposite. And Avenatti asked her about that and, and basically was saying, you lie. You put out this statement. It was a lie. Trying to show that she's capable of lying because she now says that she did have interactions with Trump. But then it got even stranger because she still says, no, I didn't have an affair. It was just a sexual encounter. So she was trying to mince words there and say, no, no, it wasn't an affair. So- um But at any rate, you're right. It was a sort of a strange, contradictory statement. So he said, Ms. Daniels, do you have a single text message, email, voicemail, or recording that says, I would not take any money from your book deal? What was that about? Right. So that was kind of the heart of the matter. All this other stuff was a little bit of a maybe a distraction or just trying to make Stormy Daniels look a little nuts. But what it really got down to was when she hired him, they signed an agreement uh, that said that he would be entitled to a share of any future book or media deals. But this agreement then says the amount will be determined by the parties later. So he's saying, look, you knew all along that I was entitled to some of this book money and that I had lots and lots of expenses from representing you in this huge lawsuit. And she claims that he verbally told her that he would not take any of the money after, even though they signed that agreement. So they're interpreting the agreement differently. You know, yes, I think Avenatti acknowledges they never did specifically agree to an amount from the book deal that would, he'd be entitled to. Uh, but he's arguing that she knew all along that he was going to be entitled to that money. What happened with her defamation lawsuit against Trump? Yeah, so that was a separate lawsuit, um, separate from the non-disclosure agreement lawsuit. That was in California. She lost it, and she was also ordered to pay Trump's legal fees of almost $300,000. So she was pretty upset about that. Um, I think she blamed uh, Avenatti for some of that, and he you know, had suggested that it was her, um, that she ended up falsely accusing him of stealing her, you know, this book money, um, sort of as payback for that or, you know, so that she'd have money to pay the $300,000. Is he as dramatic in the courtroom as he used to be when he was doing TV appearances? I would say yes. You know, he is, or he was a very successful, you know, lawyer. He, you know, said on his website that he 
you know, had secured hundreds of millions of dollars in settlements for clients in lots of cases before he ever represented Stormy Daniels. So, of course, all that has come crashing down. His law firm, you know, is gone, and he's been convicted in uh, another criminal case separate from this. Of course, in 2020, he was convicted of trying to extort Nike out of $25 million on behalf of another client during settlement talks. He was sentenced to two and a half years for that, and he hasn't even started serving that prison term. Then there was a third criminal case in California where he was accused of ripping off other law firm clients of his, and that ended in a mistrial, although they're going to retry that case. He's out on bail from the California cases while he's here in New York? Right, right. He's been basically under uh, home confinement in California for quite some time, uh, staying with a friend in Venice, California. But because of this trial, he's now uh, been allowed to travel and it's, and it's here for that. You know, with a lawyer owes a client money, it seems like it might. this might have been a civil case. Did his celebrity play into this becoming a criminal case? Well, I mean, it's hard to know exactly what, uh, you know, the Justice Department is thinking or the U.S. Attorney's Office here when they decide to bring a case. But, you know, of course, Avenatti has claimed, uh, you know, all along that all three of these criminal cases, you know, they were brought during the Trump administration. And he claims that that he was targeted by Trump's Justice Department specifically because of his lawsuit on behalf of Stormy Daniels. So you're right, I guess it could have been a civil matter, but just between Stormy Daniels and Avenatti. But he argues that uh, because of who he is, you know, I don't know if Stormy Daniels went to the feds or if it was the other way around, but they put together, you know, three completely separate cases against him and really sort of turned his world upside down. So he's actually filed a claim with the Justice Department accusing the Justice Department of improperly having him thrown into solitary confinement when he was first arrested. He said that he spent weeks and weeks and weeks in solitary confinement in horrible conditions. And again, he says that Trump and former Attorney General William Barr did that intentionally to punish him. And so he's seeking about $90 million from the government uh, for that. And that's uh, a pending claim before the Justice Department just filed a few weeks ago. Eric, I also want to talk to you about the January 6th prosecutions. And we've seen that the defendants are a varied bunch. Tell us about the former influencer, Brandon Straka. So Brandon Straka is uh, described as a pro-Trump uh, social media influencer, basically. He's a former liberal, self-described gay former liberal from New York City. He reportedly was a hairstylist. Um, and at some point, he uh, decided to switch to becoming a Republican and supporting Trump and started a social media campaign all about trying to convince other Democrats to switch parties. So he became a bit of a social media star on the right, very popular with uh, conservatives. And he ended up you know, participating in some rallies after the election, claiming that it was stolen, that sort of thing. He spoke at a big rally of conspiracy theorists in Washington, D.C. on January 5th, 2021, just the day before. And then he also participated in the assault on the Capitol and live streamed it <laughs> to his to his followers, about 660,000 followers. Um, and at one point, you know, he's caught on camera encouraging people to violently steal, take a shield, a protective shield from a riot officer. So very bizarre case. He's, he's 45 years old. He, he pleaded uh, guilty to disorderly conduct in October 
um, and was just sentenced last week uh, to three years of probation. He had been cooperating with the feds. Uh, he had about three meetings with them, I think, according to the court papers. The uh, prosecutors had wanted a period of home confinement as part of that sentence, but uh, they didn't end up getting that. So just three years of probation for this guy. And uh, yeah, as you said, there's a lot of sort of interesting characters who participated in that. And he certainly seems to be one of them. What's the civil suit against him? The civil suit? Yeah, there's a civil lawsuit filed against him by a group of Capitol Police officers who were injured during the insurrection. And uh, the defendants in the suit include Trump, uh, as well as Roger Stone, the political operative, and uh, several members of different right-wing militia groups, uh, like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. So he stands out as kind of an unusual defendant in that case, but they uh, allege that he was part of a conspiracy to deprive these Capitol Police of their civil rights and to, you know, basically alleges that because of all of their conduct together that they're liable for these officers' injuries. And he, of course, denies that and is seeking dismissal of the suit, as are the other defendants. The people who marched on the Capitol were a diverse group of people, more than one would have expected, perhaps. There was also a Yale Law School graduate. He's actually the the head of the Oath Keepers right-wing militia, and he's fighting uh, he's fighting those charges. He's pleaded not guilty. All of those Oath Keepers members have pleaded not guilty. I think it was just last week. So they're definitely going to be putting up a big fight here. They all have separate lawyers, and they're putting together uh, what I think they're you know, suggesting is going to be a, a pretty big defense here that could lead to a very interesting trial, um, I think, is in July. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Google and Facebook make billions of dollars a year from their digital ad businesses, but they face data privacy legal risks on multiple fronts, from Congress, from the Federal Trade Commission, and from lawsuits. Joining me is Matthew Schettenhelm, litigation and government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Tell us broadly about the data privacy legal risks that Google and Facebook are facing. Google and Facebook make billions of dollars a year from their digital ad business. And they now face, you know, really, I think a myriad of different legal risks on many different fronts. It's really a story about one legislation. Congress is looking at making laws here as they never have before. Regulation, the Federal Trade Commission is looking at creating rules to potentially govern these businesses. And litigation, Uh, you see attorneys general in states across the U.S. bringing more lawsuits. You see class action uh, attorneys pursuing litigation against these companies as they never have before. And so it's really on those three fronts where you're seeing major legal risks for this very lucrative business for these companies. Let's start with the possibility of a law from Congress. I know that people from both sides of the aisle are on board for tightening the rules for Internet platforms. But is there any consensus in Congress about a data privacy law? So that's really the stumbling block. And as you said, I mean, this is really a change. For the past 20 years or so, there's sort of been this bipartisan consensus that the Internet works best when we stay out of the way as lawmakers. That's changed very quickly in in the last five years, where I think now there's a bipartisan consensus that, well, maybe we went too far there. And maybe if we have no rules of the road, that leads to problems. Now, where lawmakers are having an issue is identifying exactly what is the problem and then agreeing on fixes on it. And I think we're still pretty far away here when you look at directly regulating the digital ad business, which is the core business of of these companies. There isn't really consensus across Democrats and Republicans, or even within the parties themselves, about exactly how to do that. And the big hurdle is in the Senate, you need 60 votes to make legislation into law. And that requires, you know, often 50 Democrats and 10 Republicans. And when you have the parties disagreeing about what is the problem, it's hard to agree on a solution. So we're not there yet, at least on any sort of comprehensive data privacy legislation. You're going to keep seeing headlines, hearings about it. I'm not sure that in the near term you're going to face comprehensive legislation. You might see sort of targeted legislation, maybe for children's data, but I think we're still pretty far away on that consensus on direct regulation of the core business. So then you have the Federal Trade Commission, which hasn't historically made rules for internet companies. What's the danger there? Yeah, so that's like, I think what might be one of the big stories to to watch this year. If Congress can't agree on how to go after these businesses and can't make a new law. It doesn't necessarily mean that the companies are going to continue to get to make the rules of the road for themselves. 
the Federal Trade Commission usually, historically, as you said, hasn't been in the business of making rules on the front end. It goes after companies after the fact and says, what you did there was unfair, and it brings an enforcement action against it. Now there's sort of a change in thinking at the Federal Trade Commission under new chairwoman Lena Khan. And so in the middle of 2021, the Federal Trade Commission went through and streamlined its process for making rules generally, which had been very difficult. And so they've kind of simplified that a little bit, sort of clearing the deck and getting things ready to go once the Federal Trade Commission has five commissioners in place. We're still waiting for the Senate to confirm a fifth member. But when it does, I think you could see Lena Khan lead an effort to create rules on the front end for these internet businesses. Now, there's lots of questions about the Federal Trade Commission's authority. The Federal Trade Commission isn't Congress. It can't do whatever it wants. It's limited in its jurisdiction and to what it can reach. But I think there's going to be significant pressure on the Democrats at the Federal Trade Commission to be aggressive in making new rules like that. And we don't know what exactly they have in mind yet, and we'll, we'll get to see them as the process plays out. But there's a chance that they start to go in that direction of trying to go after core elements of the digital ad business. And that would surely face lawsuits, wouldn't it? Any rules the FTC makes? Absolutely. There's major procedural hurdles just as a matter of making those rules. They have to jump through a number of hoops in the law to make that happen. But then substantively, you're exactly right. Whatever rules they make, if they're disruptive to the industry, you're surely going to see an immediate legal challenge to those rules. And the question then is, did the Federal Trade Commission have the authority to make rules like that that interfere with the business? The Federal Trade Commission's power is limited to policing unfair and deceptive practices. And that's what they've historically done through after the fact adjudication. If they go on the front end and say X, Y, Z practices are unfair or deceptive, there's a real risk that the courts will step in and say, yes, you have that power to police unfair and deceptive practices, but you don't have the power to make major rules about a core element of American business. Congress didn't give you that power clearly. And there's a real risk that the FTC goes beyond its narrow grant of authority and then ends up stumbling in the courts. We don't know exactly how aggressive the Federal Trade Commission will be. There's a risk that it's pretty aggressive. But as you said, they're, uh, on the back end, the courts will serve as, as somewhat of a protection for the company. Now let's turn to the risks from litigation. And there's already a lot of litigation against the companies. So how big a risk is litigation in general? Yeah, in, in general, this is a problem. I think it's growing in, in scale because so many class action attorneys and so many attorneys general have, have realized that these are good targets. And, and one reason that they are good targets for litigation is because they, the companies have so many users. And, and for example, um, last week we saw D.C. and three other states bring lawsuits against Google for its use of location data, that it was trying to, to collect people's data about their location. Even though they tried to turn it off, Google was taking that data anyway. I don't think that's a huge deal for the company when you're talking about three to four states. Um, when it becomes a problem is when you look at nationwide class actions and potentially, as we said earlier, the Federal Trade Commission's enforcement authority. 
The Federal Trade Commission can, in some cases, collect civil penalties of $46,000 or more per violation. And when you do $46,000 per violation times millions of users, the math gets astounding. And so you saw Facebook in 2019, it settled uh, an FTC investigation like that for, for $5 billion. And a lot of Democrats said that was a slap on the wrist. You let Facebook off too easy. So every time there's there's some sort of issue about their data practices, you run the risk of the Federal Trade Commission and class action attorneys and potentially states attorneys general banding together to bring these sorts of enforcement actions. And even if you're just talking $100 per user, the math adds up when you, when you have uh, that many users. And that's just a piece of it. The other piece is shareholder lawsuits. Every time you see a big scandal, and you saw this, the Facebook whistleblower last year led to a big drop in Facebook's uh, share prices, you see litigation over that, and that threatens billions of dollars. So it's really multiple fronts um, on the litigation side. These are big companies. They can handle the cost, but it's a, it's a rising and persistent threat, I think. The suit by D.C. and the states, is mm-hmm. that likely to be settled I do think it will. So we we have one case that was brought by Arizona a couple years ago, which is a very similar suit. And it's still playing out. We're we're, we're two years into it and they're still litigating it. So I suspect that Google will fight each of these these three lawsuits just as it's fought the Arizona lawsuit. And so far, Google hasn't been able to knock that out. But as I said, I do think if it can't knock any of them out, and and one good thing for the company here is each one is going to be fought in its own state court. So it's not like they all rise or fall together. And so that kind of helps contain the risk. And so it can try to knock off each individual one based on state laws in in that state. But then even if it can't knock them, them off, I think Google can settle suits by, you know, by three or four states like this. Um, you know, for in the mid hundred million dollar range, uh, I think I said four hundred and fifty million dollars when I did some estimates of it. And for for Google, that's that's something that is not real disruptive. What, when it becomes a risk, as I said, is when it when it goes nationwide and the FTC or class action lawyers go go bigger or more attorneys general band together to do this. That's when it becomes you know billions of dollars of, of potential risk, and it's that's a harder thing. Um, control. Is there a class action lawsuit or a proposed class action lawsuit already against Google for the tracking? So, yes. So I think there are a a number of them. So there there is already an existing uh, class action lawsuit out there about private browsing that's been been pending in a federal court in California for some time now. And and there are are a handful of other suits that that are out there as well. Facebook as well um, has, you know, if you go back to the Cambridge Analytica matter, um, it settled. Facebook settled that five billion dollar investigation at the Federal Trade Commission, but there's still a class action lawsuit from from users that Facebook tried to get a dismissal of a couple of years ago, and the court refused. Now that takes forever. We're in. We've been in discovery for I think two years now with with no movement on the case. But again, every time there's a big big, you know, data scandal like this, you're inviting class action lawsuits and potentially, you know, significant settlements. We still don't have a resolution on that Facebook one. And as I said, Google as well has cases out there that are still pending. 
Is there any doubt that Google does the tracking that they're accused of? You know, I think that's going to play out in, in the cases. What Google, I think, pushed back when, when, the, when the litigation was immediately filed and said, this sort of misstates um, our practices and it deals with outdated practices. I think this is really, uh, you know, about a question of how clear were their policies. And there's an allegation that um, Google let people opt out of, of tracking in one way, but actually kept some other setting on the back end that, that consumers wouldn't know to, they need to turn off as well. And so there's, I think there, Google will push back and say, look, no, this is not nearly as confusing as, as users make it sound like. So I think there is a fight to be fought there. Um, but um, in, in some cases, the companies haven't done very well with that lately. There, there's been a push um, from the courts to say, look, you, you have to be pretty clear. Um, you can't, you know, the users aren't going to read their, you know, their terms of service every time they, they click this stuff. You got to, you can't make this stuff confusing. And I think, I think it's, it will be a tough hurdle to, to get through. So that's where I, you, you kind of think that there is a real risk that the company would need to settle this because, um, you know, in some cases their, their settings aren't very clear. And as I said, there aren't overall legal standards about how they need to be. The companies kind of get to do it on their own. And so this is the only check that you get to make your own terms of service. You just have to be clear about it. And I think there is room to, to litigate over that and, and risk for the company. I'm not particularly tech savvy, but I have been getting notices when I open different apps. Do you want to allow this app to track your location? And yep. I always say no. So I think if people are offered the opportunity one way or the other, they're going to say no, right? Why would you say yes? Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly it. And, and, and that's sort of like the, one of the biggest questions is they'll offer you that opportunity on location data. And I think one of the biggest risks as you think about what could you know, legislation look like here it would be uh, more questions like that, more empowering of users to say, um, do you want this or do you not? And making it easy for them to say no. Or Congress could say, here's the default rule. Google, Facebook, you can't take any data unless users go through, jump through all these hoops to turn it on. And so that's the real risk, I think, for the companies is moving down that road. Right now, we have some steps there and allegations that even when, when they give those options, they're not really giving those options. And so there, there's litigation over that. But, but the bigger story, I think, is the potential legislation, the making that the standard and really cutting off the flow of data that fuels these businesses. Matt, how important is the location data for Google? I mean, how important is it that they know where you are? Yeah, I think it's a great source of data for the companies. And that's, that's a point that the D.C. Attorney General and others made when they filed these lawsuits, that when, when you're trying to appeal to advertisers, it's, it's a great thing to be able to tell them, look, we can pitch a product to these users based on our knowledge of where they are, where they're driving, where they're taking their phone every day, and then tailor uh, the advertising uh, based on that location. That's a key piece of knowledge that users are often giving away, maybe without fully realizing it. 
And um, so I think it's an important, you know, part of the story if that gets targeted and the rules about how the companies can collect that data get tighter, then uh, digital ads become a little bit less effective because it can't be as tailored to exactly where users are. So to sum up, what is the greatest risk to Google and Facebook? Is it from Congress, from the FTC, or from lawsuits? So it's a great question. I think it's all of the above. In theory, the biggest risk is is a law, you know, because Congress has power to impact these businesses in a way that, that regulators or litigators can't. Uh, the problem there, as we said, is it's very difficult to do. We're not there yet. Doesn't mean we won't get there, but that's the biggest risk going forward. In the meantime, you're seeing, you're going to see, you know, rising costs and risks from regulation and from litigation. But those are unlikely to be business model disruptive in the way that a new law from Congress would be. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Matt. That's Matthew Schettenhelm, litigation and government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.